Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Lisa Pressman. In today's episode, I am talking with author Pembe Locke who wrote a book called From Scratch, and I was so moved by her story. She experienced and then shared with the world the story of great love. She met, fell in love with, and then cared for a man who ultimately died, and she was also raising her daughter with him during her caregiving of her partner, and then caregiving in grief with her seven-year-old daughter, Not only did she share her story, but she also shared how those of us who are going to be on play dates or support people who have either lost or are currently in the process of going through both grief and caregiving at the same time, how we can best support them as friends, as co-parents, as partners, as teachers, as peers, as mothers in the community. And it was really nice to have access to find out the best way to be supportive of someone, to know what you can offer in terms of help and know what is not super helpful. I know this is a little different than my usual episode. I hope you enjoy it and it helps you either feel more supported or be better equipped to support someone in need. I know these are hard things to think about but it really can help support someone going through something. We're all in this together. If you enjoy this episode, please write a review. It's so helpful to get the word out. You can subscribe to my newsletter, drlisa.bulletin.com. This was such a long conversation, so I broke it up into two parts, and this is part one, where you're really hearing from Tembe her story and ways to support anyone who is both grieving and caregiving at the same time. I would love for you to tell everybody your story, the very short version, so that before we get into parenting in grief and in illness and in joy, we can know who this is, you know, this, you know. Yes, this person is. Yes. So my, my story, my story, my stories, because <laughs> I think most, yeah. most mini stories, right? that sort of apply to our life. But, you know, I met the man of my life, married him. I met him in Florence. He was an Italian chef. I was a student. It was fate. It was destiny. It was one of those things that is 
actually book worthy. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a meet cute, as they say, that I thought was like, you know, kind of going to be like that's that sort of dinner party story that we tell like the rest of our lives together. Like we met on a street corner in Florence and, you know, and our life kind of unfolded that way for a very, for a long time. I mean, we had the added challenge, I would say, apart from being bicultural, bilingual, to races, all of those things. We were every, we were, we were everything, right? Different ages, different languages. It was all of the things, but there was the love. And what was also undergirding that was a challenge with his family, which I write about in the book, which is that they were not very accepting of me initially. And there was a lot of repair work that had to be done first and foremost between father and son. And then I was along for this family ride of this nuclear family, Sicilian family that I'm like stepping into, right? So I thought that was going to be the essential sort of conflict and big story of our lives was like, oh, we overcame these parents who were unaccepting, who didn't come to my wedding, who were like, no, 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 no. And then my husband was diagnosed and he was diagnosed with a very rare cancer, lyomyosarcoma. I was 31 years old. We were, I was, I'm an actor. That's my trade and stock and profession. I'm sort of telling this out of order, but I think that's fine. <laughs> totally fine. It's totally fine. So he's diagnosed. I'm 31 years old. We're living in Los Angeles. I am, you know, a creative professional in Hollywood. And suddenly he's not working anymore. He can't work. It was first discovered in his knee, in the bone of his knee, in the soft tissue around the bone. And so he could no longer stand and he couldn't chef. He just could not practice his profession anymore. And so what that meant was a page one rewrite of what our marriage looked like, what it meant for me to be a woman in the world, to be his partner, to now be a caregiver, something I knew nothing of. None of my peers were caregivers. There was not a large scale discussion around caregiving at the time, other than for people who were at the, you know, sort of el- elderly or elders in, in, in life. So here I was 31 years old, like, what is this? And that I write about this a lot in the book, what it did to our marriage, how it deepened our love, the challenges I was up against as a caregiver. And in a moment of remission, we became parents. So into this multicultural family, into this family that has now lived through critical illness, is in remission for cancer, we bring, we adopt our daughter, and now we're parents. And you know, that was just a magical time in our lives to be new parents with all the things that new parents have, you know, the fears, the excitements, the identity shifts, all of it. It's all there. And in about, within about two years, his cancer returned. And when my daughter was seven, our daughter was seven, he passed away. So that's sort of the arc of the events of my story, right? From beginning through marriage and motherhood and caregiving. And then I was widowed. So I'd been a caregiver for 10 years by the time I was widowed. And I was a mom. And we'll talk about this. I was a solo parent. And then my life opens up again. And that's a lot of what the book is about is the three, the first three years after his passing, as I began to sort of rebuild and try to repair, reimagine my life. And with a child who is also deeply grieving. Like life. So if it's okay to go back to some of the more painful times, I would love to know, or I'd love for everybody to know 
what is the experience of caregiving in grief? And actually before that, what's the experience of caregiving and caregiving? Like two people, a child and a partner. Yeah. I actually started writing while I was a caregiver, not because I had great aspirations of being a writer, far from it. I simply needed a place to try to understand what I was living through because I didn't, it it was so, it was so big. There were so much, there were so many colliding and contradictory feelings. Each day was unpredictable. My network of people around me ebbed and flowed and shifted. And that was also destabilizing because sometimes people were, you know, I had my friends who I call my first responders who were like right there on the scene, ready to help. And then they would peter out. <laughs> no judgment there. But because, I, you know, I learned over the years that sort of, how can I say this? I learned over 10 years of caregiving that I needed my first responders. I needed my you know, my midfield players. I don't know why I'm using all these different metaphors. Metaphors <laughs> work. You know, but the people who can like come in and end. So the the 10 years that I was caregiving, I my I my sense of myself was ever shifting and changing, which what meant that some days I was like, okay, I am in full on, I'm not even a wife today. I'm just a friggin' nurse. That's it. That's who I am today. There's not space to be wifely. No one is being, you know, a husband, partner back to me. I am a nurse with a patient. There were whole days when, you know, I was a mom trying to unpack and understand this experience for our daughter. And then there were just normal days, just great, normal, like, oh, this is an easy day. But the unpredictability of that over time was so hard. And I don't think I was really able to understand it, really. I mean, I'm still trying to understand those 10 years of my life. But I, when I was in it, I didn't get it. I knew I was stressed. I knew I was tired. I knew I was hypervigilant in a way that was kept me up at night. Early on, I, I was suffering what I would just call stress overload. Later, when I had a panic attack in Whole Foods on the frozen aisle section, <laughs> on the frozen food section, of, and I thought, and, it, and I literally, they called the EMTs to come and, you know, check me out. And I was sitting there in the prepared food section, now Whole Foods waiting for firemen to check my blood pressure and see how I was doing. You know, I had no language for what I was experiencing. I was fine, but I wasn't fine. I was taking him to the doctor, but no one was really checking in on me. And so I say a lot to people around caregivers, care for the caregiver. And that looks like lots of different things. One time a friend came over, I'm going to back up and say, I also had, strangely enough, a lot of, the word that comes to me is shame. There's probably a better word, but I had a kind of shame about asking for help as a caregiver. And I, because I sometimes couldn't even articulate what kind of help I needed. So I'll give you two examples. A friend came over because she was going to drop something off for my daughter and she must've seen it in my face. She was like, what is okay. And I was like, well, the stuff's upstairs. Just come upstairs with me and get it. And she passed by the guest room and there was like a mountain 
and I see a mountain of laundry that like hadn't been folded in I don't know how long. Like I was swimming under, and she was like, you know what? I'll pick that thing up that you want me to pick up. But right now I'm going to go close the door in this room. I'm going to take care of all that laundry for you. You go sit down. Like I, it would not have occurred to me to call how her. helpful that was. Yeah. Or, or even just to like, to call and say, I need someone to spend one hour folding five, six loads of laundry. It didn't occur to me, but it took her. And I was so in it. You know, it's that, it's that thing about when you're face down on the rug, you can't see, you can't see the pattern. I couldn't see what I was in. And so she had this observing outside perspective and watching her shut the door to my lawn, to, to the guest room and start to do my laundry. I felt this relief. I felt seen. I felt like, oh my God, this is really bad. <laughs> like, you know, I felt I had all of these feelings. And then another sort of similar story was years later, we were in the middle of like a meal train kind of situation where people were bringing food over and doing, you know, all kinds of things, helping us out in wonderful ways. And my friend, Sarah, <laughs> was coming over to drop off, I will never forget, pasta with lemon, fresh lemon and tomato, because that's her favorite and so good. And we loved it. And my daughter loved it. And I was outside raking leaves. Now I had a husband who was critically ill. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? So I I literally, I, I, she was, she looked at me like, okay, I'm sorry, we're all cooking for (laughs) you and you are out here. Where's your guard? What is happening? What? No, go sit down. So this is what I mean about being so deep in it. And I, this is my experience, but I can tell you because I've talked to lots of caregivers, I do advocacy around it. This is not an unusual story. It's sadly, it's not. And so what I say to people is look for those subtle signs, look for what's not being said. If you even think it might be helpful, it will. Is it the kind of thing where, because this is, by the way, true of new mothers, Forget oh. if you're caregiving for an, a partner who's ill, but you were doing, it's double. So, it's double. so being helpful when, when you see a caregiver who is not asking for it, but everybody, everybody needs support, but you just, it was doubling down on the caregiving. And so the subtle things that we might not think of, and I can see just thinking, well, laundry is a couple of hours. It's no big deal. I'll get to it. But like the weight of the world is off your shoulders when it's just taken care of. And so if we can look for those small things, if our inclination is to say, I don't want to make them feel helpless, this is not the right inclination. Go in there and just roll your sleeves up. That's what I'm hearing. And yes. And the strange thing is that I think I had a great deal of acceptance around people helping if it was help that was directly related to my husband's care. Oh, we'll give him a ride to chemo. Great. That felt like on point, <laughs> on assignment for cancer caregiving, right? But forgetting so, about you. <laughs> completely about me. Mm-hmm. And, and then there was a moment where I remember we were, I was in his, we went for a visit with his oncologist and I was sitting on the exam table and he was sitting in the chair. He was sitting in like the visitor chair because he, for many reasons, he was like, I'm sick of being a patient. He was like, can I just sit in the chair for once and not sit on the crinkly paper? And I was like, sure, fine. I'll sit here. And as I was sitting there, the nurse came in and she was a new nurse and she was like, oh, so she came to me to start to like do the intake because she thought I was the patient and to take my blood pressure. 
And for a second, I was like, she actually probably should take my blood pressure because she should check in with me. And, you know, we laughed about it. We joked about it. And then, you know, we switched positions. But later I reflected on that. And I share that story also because I say to doctors, when I speak to physicians, I say, when the cancer caregiver or the long-term caregiver, whatever the illness may be, when the caregiver is bringing the patient, if that's a caregiver you're seeing on the regular, right, which I was bringing my husband to 80% of his appointments, you see that face all the time. You're caring actually for the family (laughs) at this point, really, because if the caregiver goes down, the patient's going to go down too. So you got to help both. And I said, check in with them, you know, have have a little safe space, a corner in your office for the caregivers, you know, check in with them. And, and, you know, that's something I wish had happened for me more. And now a word from Element. You've got to replenish your electrolytes. This is something that you have to do because you've had a few glasses of wine, because you've worked out really hard and you want to keep an active lifestyle, whatever it is, you want to replace those electrolytes, even if you're not an athlete. Element has a tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't need. That means a lot of salt, not sugar. It contains science-backed electrolyte ratios of 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. And there's no junk, no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, no BS. Element is formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs, and it's perfectly suited to folks following a keto, low-carb, or paleo diet. Electrolytes facilitate hundreds of functions in the body, including the conduction of nerve impulses, hormonal regulation, nutrient absorption, and fluid balance. I am not a hardcore worker outer. I definitely get headaches when I get dehydrated. I get headaches when I have wine and I wake up in the middle of the night. So I find having Element really helps with a better night's sleep after a lovely dinner out. Right now, Element is offering my listeners a free sample pack with any purchase. That's eight single serving packets free with any Element order. This is a great way to try all eight flavors and pick your favorite one or share Element with a salty friend. Get yours at drinklmnt.com slash humans. This deal is only available through my link. So you have to go to drinklmnt.com slash humans. Try element. Shopify gives entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for big businesses. So upstarts, startups, and established businesses alike can sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and effortlessly stay informed. I think it's great how Shopify has the tools and resources that make it easy for any business to succeed from down the street to around the globe. I love supporting small businesses. So a business that supports small businesses and their capacity is awesome. Reach customers online and across social networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps, including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. Synchronize your online and in-person sales, gain insights as you grow with detailed reporting of conversion rates, profit margins, and beyond. More than a store, Shopify grows with you. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Go to shopify.com slash goodhumans, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features so you can see how helpful it can be for your business. 
grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash goodhumans right now. That's shopify.com slash goodhumans, goodhumans in lowercase. Shopify.com slash goodhumans. What are questions that people could have asked you that wouldn't feel invasive, that would have been a good check-in? One thing they could have asked is the sort of how are you doing was too vague, right? Because I didn't have language. It was too big, broad. It was like, I what? I, me? Who's me? You know? But things like, I have Thursday afternoon and Friday afternoon off. I can bring you a meal Thursday afternoon or Friday afternoon, which would you prefer? That has brought my choice points down to two things. I'm choosing between a Thursday or Friday. And in my caregiver brain, I can make that decision. I can hold that. Caregivers are are straddling so many. They're holding, I'm holding prescriptions. I'm holding appointments. I'm holding at the top, I was holding toddler play dates in my brain as well as meals. I was, you know, when was the car going to get maintained? Oh, you know, application. It was so much that bringing the choices down to simple things. So if you're going to offer help, offer it with clear parameters. (laughs) And it's like, I am on Amazon right now. I see that they have X. I'm going to send you one, or would you like two? That sort of thing certainty in this world that has none of it. That has none of it. That was very, those kinds of questions were useful. In terms of checking in with me, the questions were, if you're going to ask how the person is doing, often what was good for me was if I got a text first that would say, hey, checking in, I'm going to try to call you this afternoon. I'd really love to check in. That already set, I knew that when that call would, when that call would come in, it was to check in with me, right? Because a lot of times people call to check in and they talk about 5,000 other things. And then at the end, it's like, oh, and how are you? And then by then I'm tired. We've checked in for 20 minutes. And like, I'm now not going to launch into another 20 minutes about how I'm doing. You're just going to say, I'm doing okay. Let's I'm just doing be done. okay. And I'd keep it moving, right? Because by then I had to go on to other things. But that sort of two-tiered approach. Hi, thinking of you. I know today is a big day. I'll call you this afternoon. Great. Then the call comes. And when the call comes, before we get into anything about how your husband's doing, how are you feeling, right? Check in with me first. Follow up about the patient right? Which is not always what we think to do. We call him because we want to know like, how's he, he's the critical one, right? Right. He's the critical. Let's check in about how he's doing first. And, you know, that invisibility and, and, and that invisibility was really hard. And I didn't even know I was invisible, but I suspected it in my resentment. (laughs) I suspected it in, you know, <laughs> the resentment yeah. is like the telltale sign that something's not right here, you know? And All that's right. I had one dear friend who was very good at making space for all of the shadow feelings. Tell me more. Bless her. Well, she was like, this has to be a whole, and I can use an expletive. I don't know if we do on your Go show. For it. Okay. She was like, this is a whole fucking hell of a lot. 
And it's got to be so frustrating. And do you sometimes just want to like get in your car and drive away? Like she would say the thing, like the worst thing that, you know, and, and so just hearing it externalized, I was like, whoa, okay, the doors Those open. Those don't have to be secret, deep, deep feelings that I'm not supposed to have. Yeah, because there were times when I didn't want to drive away. And not that I wanted to leave him or abandon ship or whatever, but I, it was just like, good God, I need a break. Yeah. I need a break. There were times when I also had to, and Sato and I, my, my, you know, my late husband, his name was Sato. I hadn't said that earlier, but we got to a point where we could really be really frank and honest with each other about those dark feelings as well. That was a growth. We didn't start there. I don't think any couple starts there when this happens. It took many years and lots and lots and lots of conversations to be able to say, I need you to still be my husband, even though you are cancer patient A. I get it. And yet, and still, I'm right here. So remember our anniversary. You don't get a pass on that. Right. You don't. And he would be like, I can tell you are so over me right now. I probably want to run over me with the car. (laughs) So (laughs) he was like, I can see it in your face. And I'd be like, you're not wrong, but (laughs) we still have to get to the appointment on time. So can you hurry up? Like we got to that place and we could like say those things and then laugh a little bit because also that was telling us we still were, we still were the couple who met, who could like laugh with each other and like, you know, can, can sort of be honest and take those little friendly sort of, and own it, own the situation, own the fact that this is, is terrain we never expected. This is terrain that is anew, that is uneven, that is filled with booby traps at every turn. And yet here the hell we are. And I'm tired and you're tired and you're sad and I'm grieving and I can't even tell you I'm grieving because to tell you that I'm grieving might be an admission that I think you might not pull through this. So I don't, I don't even say to you that I'm, you know, and then sometimes he would come to me and be like, well, I really want to talk about mortality. And I might not want to at that moment because I am not ready to take that in. But I also am in contract to hear my partner saying, I need to talk about this because that's a part of this story too. And that might happen and it probably will happen. And can you make space to talk about that with me? And then I'd have to sit and we would listen and we would talk. And that that was toward the year seven, eight, nine. You know, we didn't start there. I think with the beginning, we were like, hope, hope, we'll push through all the fight language around cancer, you know, fight, fight, fight. And someone beautifully said to me, you know, are you at war with your own body? Who are you actually fighting? Like to integrate the fact that this illness is unfolding into your life as much as you, we didn't ask for it and don't want it, but to rail against it, to push it away is not actually always helpful. And that's an odd thing to say, and people may feel different ways about it, but what we found over 10 years was there's times when you need to kick into gear and say, okay, we're going to rally the troops. We're going to give this our best 
best effort at all of it. We're going to, you know, leave everything on the mat. And then at the same time, we bow to the fact that this is in our lives. And I can't put my head in the sand and just say, I'm going to fight. I'm going to get over this. It's going to be great. You know, we're going to, it's, it's both things. It's a, (laughs) it's a yes. And world (laughs) it's a, both things are happening at the same time. And so with him and with us, we learned when we were in sort of like, okay, let's give it our all. Let's rally all the troops. Let's get all the effort. And then there were times to say, okay, this is bigger than us. We have to submit to this. And it doesn't mean we're giving up. It just means we are bowing to the reality that is. I find it so hard to hear people almost put the onus on the caregiver, on the patient to have this, you know, sense that they have to rise above all of that and, you know, have an attitude and a, you know, a, a, a heroic something to inspire those around them when it's like, can I just like, is it not heroic enough that I'm here? (laughs) Yes. And that I'm showing up every day in this life, in this body with all the pain and the discomfort that I'm feeling, and I'm still being a husband, I'm still being a father. And, and, and that is, you know, it, there was a, there was a time when sometimes the optimism was toxic. That's what, that's, I think that is the quality. There was, there's some quality that, that happens with that. Mm-hmm. So can you speak to that a little bit? And then maybe well, that goes into how you talk to your daughter about all of this. Yes. yes. So, you know, the, the, first of all, we got all the people sent us early on all the books about all the ways from how you could sleep cancer away, eat cancer away, you know, laugh cancer away. You could, you know, do all the things. Right. And by the way, there's truth and value in some of all of it. Right. But the onslaught of, if you just do this one thing, then this other big thing will go away in your life. That's sort of the message that was coming. And that was very hard to take in because what it sent me, it sent me scrambling like, okay, I've got to make the eggs that take, okay, it's just the egg white. Okay. Then that will be the thing. Oh, it me. And so it was all of these prescriptive elements around diet, sleep, you know, uh, alternative. And by the way, we tried everything and we did all of the things. Of course, of course. And all of it was, and, and, and I was appreciative of it, but it was also a, it was a lot to sift through. And so with that, the subtle and silent message was patient, maybe something you did <laughs> caused this. Maybe if you'd lived differently, Ugh, yeah. this might not be there. Because a lot of times when we were, when he was first diagnosed, people would say, well, how did he, how did he, does it run in? Did he, did it run in hit? You know, we're looking for that causation. Mostly to make ourselves feel better, right? Like if I'm asking you that, it's to make sure I'm not going to get it because I didn't do that. Exactly. (laughs) Arbitrariness of it is too terrifying. And I was like, and it took me years to realize, oh, I'm, that's their stuff, not my stuff. Like that's them coming at me with their, and, you know, I would delicately, you know, sort of dance around and, you know, the, the answer, but yeah, it is, it was that I think looking for a cause and one of the things that was so beautiful about being married to a Sicilian-born chef, 
Masada was, is that he had this beautiful sort of love and zest for life and like passion and, 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 and that, and he was also Sicilian, which had its beautiful fatalism. So he was like, (laughs) he was both things at once. So he'd be like, I remember he was in the hospital once and we got some test results back and I came into the hospital room and I was like, Masato, look, you don't have X. The tests say this. And he was like, that's wonderful. Great. I still have cancer. <laughs> like, 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 let's keep this real. Like, let's hold both things, you know, be true. And so, you know, anyway, the, the, the point is, is that I think being honest about all of it, about the fear about the the hope for getting better or this next treatment being the 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 magic cocktail that will put the cancer in remission put the body back in balance you know we want to be able to sort of hold all of those things for me i needed many people in my life to hold cuz not everybody could hold all of it right? (laughs) I didn't have one friend who was like the magic friend who could just do everything. I had the friends that I could cry with, the friends I could laugh with, the friends who I could just like, you know, kvetch with and be like, you know, I had a landscape of different people who serve different functions, but across the board, I had to have people in my life with whom I could be brutally honest. That if I called you and I said, can you stop what you're doing? I just need to get this off my chest that we were in contract to do that. And that honesty translates to how we also talk to our daughter. One of the things about becoming parents with a background of chronic illness or critical illness or remission or cancer is that we knew that life was precious. We'd been through that. We knew that there was an inherent vulnerability to the family structure that we were seeking to form and that this child would potentially be on the ride for a parent who was having up and down with illness over, you know, what we hoped would be many decades. It turned out to not be many decades, but we got, she got seven beautiful years with her dad. So she always knew that illness was around. Plus she saw nurses coming in and out of the house and she would go to treatments with him. So she's not, you know, we would talk very openly about, and I want to say openly in an age appropriate manner. Answer the question that is asked. We allowed her to participate and be a part of certain things. So for example, when we had a home nurse and she would come over, we'd say, oh, the nurse is coming. Should we put some, you know, cookies in the oven for her, right? To like simple things. You just keep the, you know, ready to make 15 minutes in the oven and they're done. Like nobody's making anything from scratch, <laughs> but we would have that and be like, and, and so then my daughter's like, that's a fun thing, right? So we're trying to also, and she feels like she's doing something to be yes. helpful to the nurse who's helping her dad. So that made her feel empowered, right? She gets to do something nice for the nurse. And then, you know, if it's like, she used to love to put the alcohol swab, you know, like to like before they put clean his port or put the put the IV in. She would like do that part, right? And so what we didn't do was try to shield her from 
needles and IVs. It was a part of our landscape of our home. So we normalized it and we'd integrate it, but we also would let it not overshadow her life. She still had her life. So she would see that and be like, okay. And then maybe when he would get hooked up to IV, they would sit and watch TV together. Or she would have a friend and a play date would come over. But what we didn't do was make it a secret or make it something that was off in one corner of the house that, you know, we were pretending as though it wasn't unfolding in her life. Which was a real gift to her because she would have known either way, but now she doesn't have to have the stomach ache of something is up that the grownups aren't telling me about. Exactly. And that's the one thing that we really, really strove to do. And for Sado, we were also very clear that especially as his illness returned and then progressed, we were very clear that of the energy that he had in the day, like if he had, you know, you know, three good hours in a day of energy, we as the couple, as the parents made the choice, she gets the better part of your energy for the day. So if you've got some extra energy to give, you're going to do you're going to do bedtime, you're going to play with her, you're going to build those blocks. You guys are going to, you know, cook something in the kitchen together. She gets that time because she's the child in this, we're the parents and she needs memories and she needs that connection to you. And and so, you know, there were times when, you know, I as the wife was like, okay, you know, but I I knew I that yeah, but the mother in me knew that it was the best thing. Yeah. You know, and and they had the strongest and most connected relationship. And it also gave him something to really like rise to. So even though, you know, that was that was the sort of joy and the gift in all of that was he was deeply needed, right? We didn't sort of, I think one of the things that gets hard, especially if you've been a patient for a very long time, is you can feel so helpless. Like everyone else is having their full lives and you are not having your full life. You are, you know, as my husband used to say, I'm a professional patient. I was a professional chef. Now I'm a professional patient. And being needed to do the things for our daughter gave him like, all right, I got my task. This is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to do the best daddy, you know, whatever this thing is for today. And it gave him something to look forward to. So that was a win-win. But we all had to be really, we as a couple had to be honest about that. And then we in turn had to be really honest with our daughter. And there were hard, hard conversations, but good. And now a quick break so I can tell you about my sponsors. Parallel is the first and only OBGYN-founded prenatal vitamin offering targeted nutrition for each unique stage of motherhood. I really wish I had had Parallel when I was pregnant because, first of all, they have vitamin packs for anyone trying to conceive, as well as a product for postpartum and early motherhood. And it's all neatly packaged in biodegradable packaging for one serving per day, so you don't have to do any thinking that you don't need to. Each product is meticulously formulated and does not contain any of the junk that you wouldn't want to put in your body, particularly when you're supporting yourself and a baby. That's why I want to focus on their mom multi-support pack, which is just such a great product. Parallels mom multi-bundles together two prenatal vitamins, offering full spectrum nutrition and immunity support, a high quality omega with DHA and EPA to help with brain development, along with a stress support blend because 
uh, I think we don't need to explain. Parenting is a high-stress job. And also a beauty blend to support your hair, skin, and nails. Each parallel pack comes with a 30-day supply of vitamins, all conveniently bundled together into a recyclable daily packet. And you can take it on the go anywhere, anytime. And with Parallel, you get everything you need for under $48 a month. Exclusively for Raising Good Humans listeners, Parallel is offering 15% off your first three months of Parallel with the code HUMANS15. So head to parallel.co, P-E-R-E-L-E-L.co. And if you don't love it, you can cancel anytime with a 30-day money-back guarantee. I think I've made it very clear that Once Upon a Farm is my favorite baby food and kids snacks brand. It offers organic, cold-pressed fruit and veggie pouches, dairy-free smoothies, overnight oats, plant-rich meals, and more. And it's made with whole, farm-fresh ingredients, no added sugars, concentrates, or anything artificial. Their subscription offering is fully customizable, so you can pick and choose from their wide variety of blends or meals and switch it up before every delivery or just let it do its thing so that you don't have to think at all. I know that back to school is hustle and bustle of chaos. So anything you could take off your plate makes it easier. And Once Upon a Farm can help with healthy on-the-go snacks for kids of all ages. My daughter gave me permission to say this. She is a full-on teenager and loves those pouches because They give her a little boost when she's getting ready for debate practice. I cannot explain this. You could pack it in a lunchbox, bring it as an after-school snack in the car, take it to practice, go to the park and playground. And their new immunity blends are made with nutrition-packed superfoods like elderberry and dragon fruit and probiotics to help support your little ones. And I mean, they have things like green kale and apples, so you can also feel like They're getting the foods you really want them to get and the nutrition that they need. You can find Once Upon a Farm at retailers nationwide and online. Get started today and enjoy an additional 35% off your first subscription order. Use the code HUMANS at onceuponafarmorganics.com. That's onceuponafarmorganics.com. And if you have a parent friend who has a new solid foods eater, that's a really good gift. Just saying. So if somebody is caregiving during grief, did you learn anything in those first few years that you feel like, I wish, I wish I had this roadmap, even though I'm sure it's so individual? Yeah, I think I would say in terms of parenting, I wish I had been more willing or had more permission to allow even more help in. And I I think I keep saying the same thing. I think there's a theme here, which is allowing help in. When you're a caregiver, you're so used to extending the care outward. And it is a radical shift to allow it to come in and to find that balance, but you must. So having one person or two people who are super close, who are saying, I'll be that kind of co-parent in the wings for you to run ideas by 
you know, that I didn't have to hold all the decisions in my head that I eventually, you know, I had, I had my stepmom, I had my mom and I had a couple of close friends. I could be like, I don't know what I should do about X. You know, she's, we're going to, I remember when she was getting ready to leave elementary school and transitioning, you know, toward middle school, that's a big inflection point, right? That change. And I was like, what do I do about does she get a cell phone now? Like, it's just simple questions like that. Like, what does that mean? And what does that look like? Having someone, a brain trust, a parental brain trust to bounce ideas off of, that is so invaluable because you don't feel like you're alone in it. And in making these decisions about, for about your child's well-being, their health. So that was, I wish I'd used and employed that a little sooner, right? So that's the parenting side of it around. And then for... For me, I think I'm still learning the value of rest. I, I, and I'm going to say this because I caregiving takes so much of you physically. There's a toll that it takes cumulatively, and it's a slow burn. It's a slow burn. And we now know, and you know, as for your work, what stress does on the body. And I don't mean just the big stress of losing a spouse. I mean the quotidian, constant stress that becomes your baseline. And so understanding that you are doing two, if not three, jobs, roles in your life, and that you must have time to reset. And is, is, I I, I can't say it enough. And I think I have been slow to adapt that. (laughs) I think the pandemic helped me. It did it it, because it normalized a lot of people. Yeah. It normalized it for everybody. Everybody was suddenly like, well, (laughs) you know, we're, we're stuck in our homes. (laughs) Let's try to, you know, after we stop manic baking sourdough bread, maybe (laughs) we'll just friggin' rest. The rest is key for, for your, again, for your own individual health. And people told me that, and maybe sometimes I, I rejected the form in which their suggestions came because it was like, go to the spa, you know, get your nails done. And by the way, wonderful things and wonderful wonderful things to do. Absolutely. But sometimes they felt out, my grief felt outsized to that. Like, what is getting my nails done going to really do? Like that seems so stupid and trivial. Trust me, those little things, they do add up. And because over time, what I realized is like, oh, if I build a little bit of ritual around this, what it's saying is I'm, I'm carving out time, not only for myself, but just to be. And my, I have a beautiful friend who was like, you need People Magazine in your life. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, I don't, I am not a reader of People Magazine. No slight against People Magazine, but I don't read. She was like, what I'm saying is you need to sit somewhere, not think about all the things that your brain is constantly racing about. And have something like a People magazine and just have somebody put color on your nails. That's not the worst thing in the world. And you're allowed to like, just have that be. You're allowed to do it, right? So I don't know if that's really answering your question, but that's what yes. came to mind. Everything that you're saying is so 
outside of my experience. So hearing from you is, and, and these are not questions to just go up to somebody who's been through what you've been through and just throw out at them. So I appreciate that you're open to it because I, because this unfortunately is not your own, you're not the only person who's been through this and we're all going to know someone, be someone or love someone who needs support. And one thing I do want to know, because now your daughter is, she's 17 now, right? She is 17 years old. I am still wrapping my head around that, but yes. So she's 17 and you are thriving would be, Mm. I think a word that to, to, to read, to see, to see what's up and coming for you. You're, you're by all accounts thriving. And I would love to know, and, and that doesn't diminish the pain or the loss, but I would love to know what you think your daughter has seen about hope and mm. healing through watching her mother heal with hope. Oh my gosh. One of the things that's so funny. So when I was writing the book, you know, she, I told her I was writing a book. I said, I'm writing a book about my life with your dad, about our life, about Babo. And she was like, okay. And then the book, as the book began to come out, I said, can I read some parts of it to you? Because you're also in the book, you know? So I was constantly sort of checking in with her about this, this memoir, right? The book comes out and and I was recording the audio book and she she says, she came sat in the studio to listen and she said, wait a minute, you're reading your story out loud and people are going to just listen to you talk? <laughs> Classic, right? Classic teen response. It's like, people are going to just listen to the voice that I have to hear all the time, right? So she constantly like, she checks me, right? And the book was out for a while and she was like, and I said, oh, I have to go to a book event today. She's like, I'm sorry, you're still talking about this book, you know? So (laughs) I I say, share that to say that as parents or for for me, I don't always know what she's seeing or not seeing, how closely she's paying attention or not paying attention. But I do hope that what she is picking up is that she can take whatever comes her way she can own it. She can, in her own way, share it if she chooses. That she's not alone. Because one of the things we talk about a lot is that by sharing this book, I have met more people who've been through experiences like us. So suddenly what felt like just this experience we had in our home and in the privacy of our own lives, she sees now, oh, there are other kids who have lost their dad. There are other families like ours. But I also hope that what she takes away from this time in our lives and watching me at this being a 17-year-old young woman is that she gets to own her narrative, whatever that's going to look like, whatever that's going to be, and that she may fall down and she may fall down again and she may fall down 17 more times, 
but she'll get up 18. She'll get up 18 times and she'll get up again because I think that's what I, that's the way I've been living through this whole experience. And, and I think she is, I hope, and actually she said something to me. She said, mommy, interesting that you have tried new things all the time because I started writing this book in my mid forties. I'd never written a book before. And now I have adapted the book for series. Yeah. So I learned to be a screenwriter and a producer. And so I hope that what she's learning is that, you know, they talk about, and you, you talk about, your profession talks about post-traumatic growth. <laughs> I think that's like a term people put around, you know, when you go through something difficult and there's this opportunity for growth, right? And it doesn't have to look like a book and a series and all that stuff, right? No, that's a lot of, uh, that, that can be pressure that no. makes my <laughs> field really rude. <laughs> yeah. And I'm just like, no, I'm like, because when I wrote this, I was literally writing this book for me. And I thought if five people read it and get something out of it, great, because I have to write this book for me. And I knew I was writing a book for my daughter that would be a legacy of these first years, that first five years we spent together as two grieving hearts around the loss of her dad. And I wanted a record of that experience, right? That she would meet. She has not read the book yet. Not she time. Or maybe she never will. And I told her, you don't ever have to read this book. Guess what? <laughs> you get to choose. But later on in life. Later. She might read it at 30 years old, or she might read it when she's a new mom. I don't know. The point is that I want, if someone reads this book and they have no idea what grief ever has felt like, but they land on planet grief, I want this book to be like, offer some guideposts of what might happen and what it could look like on planet grief. And if they're not on planet grief, but... <laughs> their best friend is, or their daughter is, or their coworker is, if they read this book, they will know what planet grief looks like. And by the way, by the end of the book, I hope they know that planet grief is also called planet Earth. 